You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 290 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before we start this episode, I want to talk about my YouTube channel that I've started. Search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and you will find it. I've already made a few videos. It takes a bit longer to make videos than it does to make uh, audio episodes. So you got to have some patience for new videos to come out. Um, I'm not doing any like podcast episode videos. Not yet anyway. I'm doing other kinds of videos. But I still hope you enjoy them. So subscribe and share the channel in your social media. That would really help out. Now in this episode I'm joined once again by author, researcher and Freemason P.D. Newman. We are going to talk about his new book, Angels in Vermilion, The Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT. Peter Newman has also appeared in other episodes in the past, episode 164 and in episode 256. So thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, so can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are for those that haven't uh, heard your, your previous episodes? Um, <clears throat> well, I'm a, uh, an author, um, and I focus on the presence of entheogenic symbolism and the use of entheogens within secret societies, uh, religions, mystical traditions, Pretty much any any sort of spiritual application of uh, of entheogens, and um, my, my background is I'm a I'm a Freemason, I'm a Rosicrucian, um, I've practiced yoga for a couple of decades, um, studied Kabbalah, <clears throat> alchemy, pretty much had my hand in every esoteric cookie jar out there. Uh, that's about that's about it. So what makes your uh, new book different from your previous one? Well, if you'll recall in my previous book, um, An Alchemically Stoned, the real focus was on um, three primary instances of where we could absolutely point our finger and say that they were using the acacia in an entheogenic context, meaning using it to have a psychedelic experience um, within their initiations. <clears throat> but it was still, you know, kind of up in the air as to how those traditions came about, how, how those particular rites came to use the acacia in that way. Um, were they appropriating... Um, a Masonic symbol in a, within their own psychedelic context based on the fact that, you know, they knew that the acacia was psychoactive or um, was this a tradition that was already inherent within Freemasonry, only it was either sort of very secretive or so obvious that no one had to really mention it. But 
<clears throat> so the the difference in the new book and Angels and Vermilion is that uh, I realized that to to answer that question, I was going to have to take a step back from uh, masonry and co- sort of look at the problem from a more global view. And once I did that, I realized that the problem of the entheogenic activity of the acacia within masonry isn't necessarily a masonic problem it's an alchemical problem because if each each of the individuals involved who use the acacia in that way within freemasonry were all practicing alchemists um, and we're all connected um, to, in the in the same alchemical tradition which is important because there isn't just one alchemy there are alchemies um, there are as many um, solutions to the problem of the philosopher's stone as there are alchemists. Um, but this particular tradition was that just that, a tradition, and it was a lineage, a line. And once I was able to sort of wrap my mind around what was taking place, the, the picture that emerged was that uh, was that this was pretty much an unbroken lineage of transmission beginning with... Um, Dr. John D. and Sir Edward Kelly, the Elizabethan alchemists and magicians who uh, created the system of magic known as Enochian magic. <clears throat> For those who might not be aware, in alchemy to make the Philosopher's Stone, you need to start with the first matter. And I know, having hung out in alchemical circles, that uh, one of the main discussions and, and debates is what is the first matter. So, I mean, like that kind of shows you how uh, complex the world of alchemy is and how many factions there are because there's no agreed upon first matter even. That's right. <laughs> That's right. For an example, if you look at um, Sigmund Richter's True and Perfect Preparation of the Philosopher's Stone, which was published in... 1710 and is believed by uh, Frater U.D., for example, to be the inspiration behind Fichtold's Gold and Rosenkreuzer <laughs> order that emerged in the 1740s, which was really the first um, Rosicrucian order to emerge <clears throat> as such following the initial publication of the Rosicrucian manifestos. And in there... Um, he purports to name the first matter, the primal matter, by name. And, and he doesn't, when you read the text, he doesn't reveal it by name. Um, but he does give a description of it that's pretty obvious. Um, he describes a, <coughs> a fruiting body that grows on the roots of certain trees, and that, after the rainy season, and that lightning fulminates their number increases their number and all of these things <clears throat> the only thing that in nature that satisfies all of those requirements is the mycorrhizal amanita muscaria mushroom which grows on the roots of certain trees grows after the rainy season um it, it was f- thought to be folklore but now we know that it's a scientific fact that mushrooms are actually their numbers are increased by lightning strikes so for Richter, that primal matter was a mushroom. It was not the acacia. But when we're looking at um, 
the solution to these problems within Freemasonry, it's announced in very clear terms that the acacia is the primal matter. And from this matter, um, as Melusino says, the philosophers produce their treasures. When you smoke DMT, or even when you drink ayahuasca, but I, I've, I've noticed it more when I smoke DMT, is that it almost, for me anyway, it, it almost feels like you're seeing the behind the scenes of the universe, like the the structures of, of the reality or realities we are in. And it makes me think about, well, maybe it's not so strange that uh, in Freemasonry, what they reference as God is the great architect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the Where the Freemasons get that term, great architect of the universe, is from... Plato, when he talks about the Demiurge being the second party in the hypostasis and his trinity. Um, Demiurge just means craftsman. Um, The Gnostics, of course, ran with that and created their own myths, which entailed uh, an ignorant Demiurge and um, etc. But those are sort of bastardizations of what Plato was saying. But what the, the Freemasons' idea of this demiurge is a grand geometrician. So it's interesting that you say, you know, when you smoke DMT, you get the sensation that you're getting a peek behind the veil. Well, behind the veil in Platonic terms is, you know, ultimate reality. This world is informed by that other world. And that other world, the realm of the demiurge, which is the the new sphere, uh, called the noose and... Platonic philosophy is uh, it's peopled with what Plato called the forms um, or ideas. These forms are the the forms that inform everything that exists here in matter. And most Pythag- Pythagorean, Platonic, Neoplatonic philosophers agree that whatever the forms are, they're wrapped up with geometry. And as Heinrich Kluver discovered with mescaline and um, uh, David Lewis Williams discovered with his three stages of trance, the first of which is the first stage being based on Kluver's form constants, um, what they discovered was that these geometric patterns are, are common with all of these serotonergic um, hallucinogens like mescaline and DMT and psilocybin and LSD and anyone who takes them the first thing that dawns on you is is the the sheer mathematical sort of ge- geometric nature of of the the phenomenology of it the visionary phenomenology of it so yeah you're you're probably onto something that you know when we feel like we're getting a peek beneath the veil um, we may very well be getting a peek at those geometric forms that inform what takes place here further down the scale. Why did you decide to start uh, with D and then go forward and not earlier? Uh, because it's not, you know, the alchemical tradition of Europe is older. That's right. You know, the, the earliest references to the Philosopher's Stone come from um, Apollonius of Tiana, who was a Neoplatonist. Um, and then from Zosimos of Panopolis. And that goes, you know, all the way back to 
ancient ancient Egypt, uh, um, the you know first to the third fourth centuries they're about. <coughs> I guess I should say ancient um, Greece and Rome, but um, but this particular application of it, like I said, there are multiple alchemies, <clears throat> and it's clear when, like for example, Zosimos is referring to the philosopher's stone and what it is it, it it's clear that it has to do with tincturing metals actually dying metals because he was a um an egyptian priest and his sole concern was the dying of statuaries um to make them divine what, they had a tradition of animating statues and the way this was done um, principally was by giving it an anima, a spirit. And each of those spirits that these statues were imbued with, the way that they gave it that um, that power was by making it a fit receptacle for those powers. So specific colors and metals related to particular deities, particular forms, if you want to look at it that way. So... Sosimos's concern was very practical. He's trying to dye metals for the purpose of making them fit receptacles for certain um, divine energies. But that that's you know that's metals. That's what they call the uh, dry path in alchemy. We don't really get to plant alchemy until much later in and around um, <clears throat> Lully's rediscovery of alcohol distillation which made plant extraction, essence extraction possible. And then later with Paracelsus's um, invention of spagyrica, of plant spagyric alchemy, um, which got even further into techniques by which alkaloids could be extracted from plants. Um, so it isn't after, you know, it isn't after alchemy made these evolutions and these leaps and became what it became by the time it made its way into medieval europe uh that it started to take the form of even being interested in plants and when you look at for example Falconelli's second book dwellings of the philosophers he gives a long <clears throat> ge genealogy of the philosopher's stone tracing all the references to it <clears throat> that he was able to find not not um not not elusive references but references by people who claim to have made it or encountered it themselves and these references all begin and point to edward kelly and the reason being is because edward kelly um, john d's scryer seer the one who was actually able to see the angels because d himself wasn't uh, he was in possession of this red powder there's a lot of confusion about what this powder is, how he acquired it. Um, there's he, there's different tales that he told different people, but the the basic conclusion and the one that Falconelli repeats is that he this ultimately this powder came from the grave of a rich Catholic bishop, um, and that bishop was Saint Dunstan, um, Dunstan of Canterbury. And he claimed to have acquired this powder from his grave, believing it to be the Philosopher's Stone. And it's never ex said explicitly in anywhere in D that that powder was being used to see the angels. But that's not the point. The point is that 
Dee's biographer, Elias Ashmole, who was one of the founders of the Royal Society and one of the first speculative Freemasons, he believed that that powder was responsible for Dee's, for Kelly's ability to see those angels. <laughs> so that's really where it really starts with Ashmole and Boyle in the Royal Society, where we can point our finger finger and say we know what's going on now. But we go we point back to D because that's who um, Ashmole was trying that D and Kelly's activities was what he was trying to reproduce when he started investigating um, psychedelics in the Royal Society, which is another topic that uh, I'm sure you'll want to get into. <laughs> yeah, before you you can talk a bit about that, but before you do, uh, what what are your thoughts on some people think that Kelly might have been uh, a figment of Dee's imagination or or uh, like he didn't exist? Is there any proof that he did? Oh yeah, there's definitely proof that he did. He became the uh, court projector for Rudolf the Second in Prague, uh, where he was imprisoned and eventually died and. Um, we know that to this day, St. Dunstan is the saint patron of alchemy in Prague because of Kelly's position there, because of his interest in Dunstan and believe, belief that Dunstan was the source of that powder. Whether or not he was, we, we can't prove, but Kelly certainly made it appear as though it came from Dunstan and he there may have been many reasons for him to want to tie it back to Dunstan <clears throat> um, Dunstan was a, a practicing alchemist at least a blacksmith but believed to have been an alchemist and uh, was before he became a monk was known to have been um, sort of loose with his behavior he liked to drink and he was popular with the ladies and was very reluctant to even become a monk because he liked those activities so much but when he did even after he did it he was subject to visions um, in his chambers private chambers he repeatedly saw visions of the devil in his chambers so he's directly connected to alchemy visionary experience and um, an intoxication, um, to be blatant about it, directly connected to being just getting high and drinking. So it, any one of those three or all three of those reasons would have been sufficient, I think, for Kelly to want to link this powder up with Dunstan. I guess it comes from the fact that Kelly is quite is silent in, in history. It's D that's the, the speaker. Uh, that he didn't write anything himself that I'm aware of. I think he didn't. He wrote uh, Sir Edward Kelly's work, um, a poem that was published in um, Ashmole's um, Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum, is where it's published. Uh, he wrote that, and he also is alleged to have, he has a personal seal that he's alleged to have. Um, drawn himself but outside of those i i've never i never encountered the the theory that he was a figment of d's imagination so that's a new one to me well maybe not a figment but like that the two of them were uh, um, 
you know, they got the same uh, reputation as Cagliostro, maybe, like they were charlatans, or maybe one of them manipulated the other one. Oh, sure. Yeah. Kelly definitely had the reputation of being a charlatan. Um, His ears were cropped, for example, for some reason, which was a punishment in those days. And we know that he had been pilloried (laughs) for the crime of coining, which was uh, making fraudulent coins um, and fraudulent metals, you know, not passing off uh, gold or silver as though they were gold or silver when they were actually lesser metals. So we know that he was involved in some shysty activity. Um, but it's also pretty clear that once he, you know, tracked D down and cause you know, he, he tracked D down trying to get D to help him decipher that manuscript. But uh, once he got in D's employ, it's pretty clear from the diaries that that's the last place he wanted to be. He, uh, it's often said that he was, you know, sort of tricking D, and he he may have been on some level, but it's pretty clear from the diaries that he was not enjoying his experience. Yeah, he wasn't happy scrying at all, and you can see it in the diaries that. Uh, you know, he, he he protests over and over. He does not like sitting here with D for hours and hours talking, trying to talk to these angels. And when really D's sole concern is is spying and, and acquiring gold. So do you think then that uh, when he was talking to these angels or scrying that he was ingesting some substance? I think that uh, Kelly probably was, yes. I mean, there's... Uh, there's outside of Kelly himself. I mean, there are plenty of examples of entheogenic compounds being used within alchemy. Uh, there's entire sections on it in Chris Bennett's book, Libra 420, um, where he points at the use of you know, opium and hashish and nightshades. And uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Well, if I had to dictate something to somebody every day uh, smoking DMT I, I wouldn't enjoy that either you know I want long breaks <laughs> no absolutely not and uh, you know anyone who's had that experience knows how how trying that would be even to to attempt such a feat but uh but, you know, it's and it's also clear that uh, and I mentioned this in my new book that it's clear from the diaries, too, that there was obviously more than just entheogens going on with Dee and Kelly. I mean, there that was a complicated situation and arrangement. All of that phenomena that took place is still just a big question mark for a lot of scholars. But the real point of this connection is that Ashmole and Boyle believed that it was a drug, and they believed that Kelly was using it to have those visions. Um, And that belief spawned an entire um, venture of research into hallucinogenic drugs by the early Royal Society. And we know this because in 2010, the Royal Society put on display um, this document called Boyle's wish list which was a list of items Robert Boyle wanted to acquire for the society to study and this thing is full of drugs all he's wanting to acquire 
um, hashish. He mentions a, a mushroom that he wants to acquire that was mentioned by a French author. He wants drugs that cause epileptic fits, pleasing dreams and visions. Um, and then he, he just na- namely hallucinogenic drugs. He says he's looking for. And then in addition to that, we know that Robert Hooke, who was, uh, in charge of experiments in the Royal Society, delivered at least two papers on on the psychological effects of hashish. So they were they weren't just studying what we would call you know the scientific method. They were very interested in um, hashish mushrooms, and the reason they were interested in this is because, and they and it's specifically stated by Boyle, it's because he. he is convinced that it must be a drug. He says that how is it that an incorporeal substance like this red powder can cause communication? Uh, excuse me. He says how it is how is it that a corporal substance like this red powder can cause communication with incorporeal entities like angels? And they, they say it must be a drug, and that spawns this entire investigation into psychedelics that leads eventually to the injection of the acacia into Freemasonry. Um, Acacia being one of the things they were investigating, we know that they knew about it because it was in um, Christopher Columbus's report um, when he documented Yopo use among the natives when he came through South America. And Humboldt later identified the tree that those natives were using. It's actually an adenanthera called Ubrina. Um, But Humboldt identified it as Acacia Neopo, so these people were under the impression that what the natives were snuffing, the Yanomamo were snuffing as a pina or yopo powder, was an acacia species. And it was these people who were investigating this, one of them being um, a man named John Theophilus de Sagulier, who, in addition to being research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society, another practicing alchemist, was the third grandmaster of the premier Grand Lodge in London. And it was he who put the acacia in Masonic ritual. Prior to his stint as grandmaster, there is no acacia in Masonic ritual. There's only a mention of cassia, which is a cinnamon-like plant from southern China. Um, actually has no business in a Masonic ritual, which Masonic rituals being based in Jerusalem, where acacia does grow. But... So he injected the acacia into that ritual. So going back to the initial question of what have I learned in this book that's different from the other, we now know that when Cagliostro and Melisino were using the acacia in a psychedelic context in their degrees, that it wasn't just them inventing something, that De Sagulier, who inserted it into the ritual, had already been investigating psychedelics along with everybody else in the Royal Society. Most of these people lived during the time in Europe when you burned witches. Uh, how come all these people got off from those accusations? I think part of it would be the secrecy that is allowed within Freemasonry. You know, when, when the Masonic Guild existed as a stonemason's guild, at that time, um, the only only groups of people who were allowed to meet in secret were the kingdom, the the royalty, the king, and the church. Nobody else was allowed to meet in secret for fear of ideas being perpetuated that were contrary to royalty or the church. 
But because of the very real risk of people passing themselves off as master masons, master builders, actually obtaining jobs to oversee the building of homes or cathedrals, there was a very real risk of these people not being competent in that work. And what the the consequence of that is that the edifice would collapse on its inhabitants, churches collapse on on worshippers, etc. So there was an invested interest in making sure that master masons were master masons and knew the secrets of masonry of building. So masons were granted the right to meet in secret, where no one else was, no other group was, and. My suspicion is that this allowed for ideas to be discussed and perpetuated that in any other context, no one would have said out loud in public. So do you think a situation could have arisen that's like, okay, we we want to discuss these things. It's not allowed. So let's become uh, master masons and then we can discuss it. It it could be something a lot like that as simple as simplified as that sounds but it's still a big question as to why a medieval stonemasons guild that's solely concerned with actually building structures would all of the sudden start admitting men who had no affiliation with those things like Elias Ashmole who was an antiquarian and a philosopher and and a and a um he and a uh alchemist you know a hermeticist no connection to uh, the actual building guild uh, another one is um sir robert murray an early member of the royal society a good friend of the alchemist thomas vaughn also one of the earliest speculative masons why admit another alchemist hermeticist philosopher scientist into the stone mace. Why are these people being admitted into Freemasonry? It's hard to say. It's it's a it's a, a baffling question and it still has yet to be answered. I wonder in a parallel universe if uh, all the psychedelic usage and in all the psychedelic investigations of all of history was never made secret and was openly discussed. Uh, I wonder where we would be now if we would be further along into the future or if it would be behind uh, it's, it's hard to say but because uh, it could also I mean they they decided to keep it under wraps for a reason but that could also be as simple as, as power but I always have this thing where you know like anybody who takes psychedelics gets well at least everybody I know goes like oh wow I got to tell everybody, you know. <laughs> um, they do kind of protect themselves as a sacred thing. And it, it's been kind of a question of mine since we've seen these legalizations and decriminalizations happening around entheogens. Um, how do they maintain their sanctity? Uh, there, There's this one author, um, her name is Ida Craddock, and she's talking about... Uh, one etymological interpretation of the word taboo, and she believes it comes from the word tapu, which itself means sacred. So taboo, we think about taboo as being something off hand, off limits because it's in a negative. 
but she says, you know, she looks at it as, as though it's taboo because it's sacred and it's hands off. And uh, when I read that, I thought about this. And when I read it, most uh, psychedelics were still illegal everywhere in America, especially. So when I read it at that time, I thought, you know, well, the taboo around using psychedelics almost protects it as a sacrament and reinforces its sanctity. Yeah, it's true also that uh, very early on in my life when I tried psychedelics i was more eager to spread the gospel and the more i've done it the more uh, secretive i am regarding who i would like talk about it to or who i would suggest it to because i'm thinking like well if they are if they should do it it will find them you know like uh, not pushing it on somebody uh, so it could also be uh, something like that the more experienced you are maybe you're thinking well if somebody feels ready they will stumble upon it eventually mm-hmm. oh if you're if you're ready i mean especially at this day and age i mean it's there's so much information out there that you know, you know you'll find it but uh yeah i feel the same way most most noobs and and anything you can tell how new someone is at something usually by how eager they are to teach it to someone else. And I think that's true of psychedelics too. You want to proclaim it on the mountain and uh, sort of show everyone this new liberation you found, but uh, you know, it's a two edged sword. That liberation also comes with responsibility. That's a heavy responsibility when you consider the, the full girth of the implications of what's happening on psychedelics um but uh but yeah i I'm, i'm i agree with you i only unless i visit the amazon and uh take part in it that way i was or something but i only give it to myself uh but many years ago i did provide for others and those experiences luckily nothing happened but uh what did happen was uh when they were in their experience i realized what an immense responsibility i had because if anything went wrong i was the one who dosed them and uh, i didn't want that responsibility so i stopped doing that because uh, uh you know uh, things can go really bad if you give mushrooms or a high dose of anything psychedelic to the wrong person at the wrong time in their life you know mm-hmm that's right Uh, that's a hard lesson to learn it's when i learned um as a teenager with mushrooms specifically uh but that's right i mean you you never know where someone is and it's awfully arrogant to think that you can guide someone in that experience it's something you might take a drug with another person but that journey is alone um, it is a, a journey you take alone, just like in the underworld and the, the Egyptian duat, the afterlife. It's a journey that you are taking. Um, it doesn't matter if someone died with you. It's your afterlife journey. And that's the same is true of a trip. It's awfully arrogant to think you can guide anyone anywhere uh, in that kind of, of a, having that kind of an experience. The best you can do is make them comfortable, keep them clean, you know, but uh, 
but to think you can guide in that state is is a supreme arrogance i just i think the whole psychedelic guide culture is is ridiculous i understand that it's people feel there's a need for it in in psychotherapy and this they feel like a guide and i understand that they're trained in terms of guiding through psychological territories and that's one thing but uh, the idea that you could you know just any schmo off the street who's tripped a hundred times is going to guide someone else to psychological well-being and integration is uh, is just arrogant yeah and and of course being a sitter is completely different because then you're just a silent partner assisting with visiting the toilet or Sometimes just making sure, like, you know, uh, everything's fine. You know, you're still alive <laughs> if somebody asks you, but, uh, but yeah, not guiding. And also, because if you guide, you know, like, what you say might not be what they hear. So you could really mess it up if you say the wrong thing, you know. That's exactly right. And, and you know, most of these people who purport to be a psychedelic guide haven't spent any time with the person wanting to take the journey and it takes real uh real time to get any kind of a glimpse of a person's internal structure if you ever get it people most people have so many um shells and so much armor and um and and even if they didn't it's just uh it's it's risky territory that uh, we don't really understand how to guide in those states and i've done you know psychedelic hundred i've tripped hundreds of times and i still i don't understand how anyone would would um guide another person in that state it's one thing to navigate that space on your own after acquiring sea legs but the whole notion of guiding someone else is yeah again it's it's just arrogant And also, like, if somebody would ask me to be a sitter, I wouldn't say yes instantly. It would depend on who asked me and many different scenarios because that's also a responsibility. I wouldn't be a sitter to anybody. It depends on who it is. And also the same if you... I, I prefer to do it alone, but if I would ever do it with somebody, any psychedelic, that would also be a very important decision who I'm doing it with, you know. I'm I'm exactly the same way. I, I prefer to do it um alone. Um I'm a I'm a silent silent darkness type. But um but yeah, the, that's a that's an excellent point to bring up. Anybody who's listening, thinking about taking a psychedelic journey, um you know, make sure you choose who you want to sit for and vice versa. You know, make sure you choose who you're going to sit for. Um in these scenarios because they can get pretty ugly yeah like a, a neurotic hypochondriac wouldn't be a very good sitter <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's, that's an, a, an excellent point and a terrifying thought so this book uh, is it called as it is called because of this red powder you mentioned that's right so angels in vermilion the title comes from the visionary phenomenology of of uh, dmt which tends to involve um, the perception of trans what are perceived as trans dimensional entities uh, so that's where the angels part comes in the vermilion is uh, refers to the color of the root bark 
Um, and the acacia, for one, and for the second, is that vermilion itself comes from a, a mineral called the, – the pigment vermilion comes from a mineral called cinnabar, uh, which plays a heavy role in European and Chinese alchemy. Uh, the main reason being that cinnabar is composed of mercury and sulfur which themselves are possessed of heavy alchemical imports. So vermilion is sort of, the, as a pigment, is like the extract that comes from the cinnabar, the stone, this primal matter. So it's wrapped up with a heavy alchemical significance already. Um, that's why I chose that title. And cinnabar, probably the, the killer of many amateur and alchemists. In the past. <laughs> That's right. That's right. One th we mentioned the great architect could be a link in Freemasonry, and as you're as a Freemason might know better than me, but uh, what uh, I don't think I see anything psychedelic in the illustrations or visuals of, of any of these orders we've mentioned. Um, well, Freemasonry. I would argue is has a lot of uh, imagery that points to this kind of experience. The the most obvious one being um, in the Fellowcraft degree. If you think about the the three degrees of Masonry are um, correlated to the three stages of life of youth, manhood, and old age and de or death. So basically, birth, life, and death. The death portion occurs in the Master Mason degree, where the dramatic death ritual takes place. So that's where the death happens. Even so, it's in the Fellowcraft degree where the candidate ascends this spiraling staircase, this, this whirling ascent, where he goes to what's called the middle chamber. Uh, middle chamber itself being the liminal space, the in-between place, um, where he encounters God in the form of geometry. Um, that sounds pretty psychedelic to me. Yeah, in that sense, I agree. I just mean like how the visuals are, I mean like, you know, like more towards the Alex Gray kind of painting or like more colorful or, or, or more psychedelic, I guess you could say. Uh, you have to consider that. You have to consider the era too. We're talking about the, you know, the 18th century. Um, there was, was no psychedelic art at that point. We, we hadn't even had uh, symbolism. We hadn't had, surrealism we hadn't none of those movements had happened so you would be hard-pressed to find anything outside of say arabic patterns or native pattern work that you could point at and say that's inherently psychedelic um in the 18th century especially in europe yeah i i always thought that um Islam had the most psychedelic art and considering the Prophet Muhammad went into a cave talking to angels, it made sense. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I guess it, it could just be uh, an, uh, how you 
portray art, I guess, uh, in, in their culture. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an era where we have to look at the language, not necessarily the art. We have to look at what they're saying. You know, a, the first alien abduction hadn't happened yet, so that wasn't a language, a terminology. Their terminology for this brand of experience would have been based in biblical language. It would have been based in the language of Revelation, of Ezekiel, of Enoch. Um, that would have been their only frame of reference. There are no airplanes, you know what I mean? Yes, and uh, uh, I guess uh, it is it is hard to imagine how you would describe a psychedelic experience if you had no frame of reference at all. I mean, if you if you grew up on an island and and discovered it by yourself, how would you describe it? I mean, because when I took psychedelics for the first time, I I had, couldn't imagine what it would be like. But I had read some books and I had some idea of, I mean, I've listened to Pink Floyd or something, you know, like I have some frame of reference. But uh, uh, for these people, when you discover it and there's no book in the library, I imagine, I mean, you can't imagine what you would say. Well, the language that's used in the, the rituals themselves, like, for example, in the Cagliostro ritual, you know, He says that the candidate shall drink the red liqueur, raising his spirit in order to understand the following speech, which the worshipful master shall address to him at the same time. So whatever he's drinking is supposed to, quote, raise his spirit and make him understand something. So that's already a, a curious language and then again when Cagliostro was arrested he had in his possession an alchemical manuscript called um, La Tres Trinosophie and in it is it deals with a drink made from the acacia there's even a picture of the acacia branch so that there's no confusion about what the plant is um And in it, he says, uh, he handed me a crystal cup, a shining liqueur of saffron hue. Its taste was delicious, and it emitted an exquisite aroma. I was about to hand the cup back to him after moistening my lips in the liquor when the old man said, drink it all. It will be thy only nourishment during thy journeys. And then he, this is the clincher. He says, I obeyed and felt a divine fire course through all the fibers of my body. I was stronger, braver, even my intellectual powers seemed doubled. So divine fire, stronger, braver, intellect increased, or from the ritual, like he said earlier, uh, raising your spirit to understand. This is the kind of language that would have been used to describe low to moderate doses. Now, higher doses, of course, that's where the angelic language comes in and resembles more closely Cagliostro's quarantine ritual, where he actually has the candidate taking a large amount of acacia over and actually experiencing um, what's clearly an example of shamanic dismemberment and uh, a rebirth experience. Um, It, but, but that's higher doses. Have you have you ever come across any mentioning of 
like because when you when you do psychedelics you depending on which one but you have can have different physical effects like you feel sick or you vomit or you feel like seasick or nauseous or do they ever mention anything like that there's no mention of nausea in these but there certainly is in the quarantine ritual they're not just nausea he he actually shits the bed at one point so it's full-on body evacuation in the quarantine so where can people get this book it'll be available through um, amazon barnes and noble um Anyone who wants to reach out to me uh, personally, I'll have signed copies. And it'll also be available through the publisher, which is Tria Prima. Cool. And uh, it will be out when? May 19th, which is May 19th is actually the feast day of St. Dunstan. So significant timing. Oh, yeah, that's a very, very good uh, choice. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for being such a good uh, interviewer. Check out Peter Newman's books, Alchemically Stoned, and the new one, Angels in Vermilion, The Philosopher's Stone, from D to DMT. If you like this episode and this podcast, I hope you support it by sharing it in social media and with friends or writing a nice review on iTunes. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash alchemist and become a patreon do you have a couple of bucks you ain't using lying around the house uh, would you be interested in listening to these episodes before they are officially released and would you want to be able to hear a lot of extra material and deleted content not available anywhere else well, if the answer is yes, then go to patreon.com forward slash alchemist and become a patron. Now, I don't know how many podcasts you are listening to, but I bet not many of them are devoid of adverts. I'm not going to peddle... Uh, Squarespace, Blue Apron, Fleshlights, or um, Legal Zoom, or uh, I don't know, Audible. <laughs> and no, fuck all those products because you can't buy me. If I am going to sell a product, that product is going to be myself. So you'll never experience ads on this podcast, only ads that promote the podcast itself. Let's keep it meta, don't you think? So don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel and share the podcast in social media. All the links can be found on nationalbornalchemist.com. If you want to watch me have Twitter meltdowns, just follow me on Twitter. My handle is BornAlchemist. You can also leave a nice review on iTunes. I'll close this episode with the song Black and Silver by Living Dog. Go out now and enjoy the summer. See you in the next one. Freedom is in the mind. There's a buzzard circling the house.
Take 